Oh, there we go. Rock and roll. All right. Rebooting. Starting once again. This is John Reed. I've got VJ VJ Sankar, my old podcasting partner in crime, full circle back on the show, back back at IBM. It's like no time has transpired, VJ. Just been three or four years. So psyched yeah. to be back. Yeah, man. Welcome. Thank and you. we're going to talk about a number of subjects with VJ, but I want to kind of start with Internet of Things hype and also analytics because it ties into your latest career move. And then we are probably going to hit a bunch of topics, including how you ended up back at IBM. But let's start with your current role. You are back at IBM. Uh, what are you doing? Ah, So, yes, I'm back at IBM. Uh, actually, today must be like the start of my third month already. Right? I've been here two months, which is crazy. I don't know. Time just flew. Uh, what I do is I'm a VP in our big data and analytics practice uh, in, in consulting, and I'm a large deals uh, sales VP, sales and solutions VP. So that's my official title. In real life, what I do is I build a practice, I mentor folks, I help customers deliver whatever it takes. So, Right. That's so you get to find out firsthand from customers what what they think is BS and what's actually going to make a difference for them. Are are they getting a value out of analytics currently? It seems like how you're delivering analytics is starting to change, right? Yes, both are, are true statements. It's kind of funny that when I have a rather irreverent view on big data and analytics to begin with, uh, and right. my day job is to sell that same thing, you know, that I think is kind of uh, uh, hyped up. A lot of customers uh, trust me because, you know, I, I don't BS about this and my views are fairly public on uh, what is hype and what is real. Right. Most of my conversations are, are are very easy, right? Me and the customer is almost always on the same page when it comes to what's hype and, uh, and what works. Now, the second question you asked me was, has the projects as in the the way we do projects changed oh yeah we we have done a, a massive change so when i left ibm um vast majority of these big projects were either fixed price um or time and materials but now uh, we don't do a lot of either i mean there are of course a few projects where if the customer wants to do it that way we will do it that way but vast majority of projects we we sell now are, are strictly outcomes based right so We'll say things like, we can improve your inventory turn rate, uh, you know, and for X amount of improvement in inventory turns, you pay us Y dollars. Um, so that's a much more easier conversation with line of business buyers. With IT, this is tougher. But when line of business is the buyer, uh, then an outcome-based uh, model is, is a lot more fun. A lot more easy for them to understand because that's how they deal with their business partners too, right? So, uh, a much more easier conversation with IT. We have a different flavor of outcome-based um, projects. So, for example, for a certain amount of money, you you drive us to an SLA. So, if you have priority tickets, we solve it. Um, if you have projects, we do those projects. Um, if you want innovation work, we do that innovation. Uh, you just don't need to worry about who is this person doing it? Where does this person stay? Um, do I need to see him 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day, all week? 
So the customer can completely avoid thinking about those terms and just hold IBM to a service level agreement on what they want. And then um, either, you know, pay us when we meet it or beat us up if we don't. Much simpler, much simpler process. A, a big side advantage for this is that the contracts are also simpler. Right? You, there are no longer these big 500-page things. These contracts right. are much simpler, like four pages of, uh, of easy information. And as far as measuring the results, how, how do you do that? Like, is there a point where pretty quickly after go live, the customer already realizes this is going to work or because a lot of times with analytics projects, it's been hard to figure out what did I get out of this? Ah, yes. So <laughs> here is something that I was uh, ranting about today morning. I don't know whether I actually put it on Twitter or not, but anyway, I'll say it here. A lot of people want actionable BI. So I had a conversation very recently where um, a customer asked me, you know, hey, I want actionable BI. Can you give me actionable BI? I said, yeah, sure. I'll give you actionable BI. What are you going to do with it? And he said, ah, good point. I don't really know what I'll do with it. I guess as long as he's taking action, right? Yeah, exactly. So people haven't thought through it um, sufficiently in all cases, but they have heard the analysts and bloggers talk about actionable BI a, a lot and definitely want in. And it's, it's a good thing, right? At least it's good that people are starting to think about it. But people need to tie their business process to, to analytics a whole lot more. Right? My favorite example is I can create an IT system that will tell you at real time if inventory needs to be moved from Texas to California. But you knowing that you will make profit is only one part of this equation. You also need to tie together everything else. Do you have people? Do you have trucks ready to move this inventory? Right? Otherwise, what do you do with this knowledge? It's right. useless. You will spend a billion dollars creating real-time systems for everybody. But if you can't really have the business process to go with it, um, you might as well save the money. And you were talking with me before we started taping about analytics as a service. And I was wondering... If, if if that's your approach, then where are we with sort of where data resides, right? Like, because a lot of companies still have their data primarily in on-premise data centers. They're starting to look at cloud. Does that even matter? I mean, how do, when you talk about analytics as a service, how does that play out? So this is a, a hybrid situation for the most part, right? I mean, different parts of the same customer might have different views on um, on where their data should sit. There are many, many times where Internet of Things, like, you know, sensor data, they don't particularly care because nobody can make sense of it unless a specialized algorithm works for it, right? right? So uh, they are okay storing it somewhere. Uh, there are other things like, you know, customer-specific data, credit cards, and so on, where they want it not only in-house, but also in geography. So a large global customer might say that, okay, my German customer information should reside in Germany and, you know, French should reside in France and so on. So uh, the same customer, if I talk to like six different people, will have six different views on that. And technology is getting there, right? So it's, it's not as if it is not technically impossible to do it, but it is still fairly complex. So, and customers don't always understand the, the complexity of what it takes when they put rigid rules on where the data should sit. I was just reviewing the Gartner hype cycle. And I got to say, like 
the analytics space has more hype and bullshit, I think, than every other space combined right now. I mean, you, yeah. take, ev- you take everything from uh, Hadoop to data lakes to Apache Spark to uh, predictive technologies to the Internet of Things. I mean, what's, what's bullshit and what is actually real right now? No, well, vast majority is still in the bullshit territory. Yeah, right? so fair enough. No, no, no question. Now, the unfortunate part, right? The reason vast majority is on the BS territory is because we primarily talk about marketing use cases because those are easy to understand. But right. that's not where the real value is. So, for example, if, you know, predictive has a very uh, straightforward way of reducing warranty costs at one of my customers. So the, the general principle being, if a customer doesn't invoke the warranty, then the manufacturer makes a lot of money. But if the customer makes warranty, then they lose money. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a very straight win or lose situation. So they have all the incentive to do predictive maintenance for the machines they give to a, a customer. Right? This is how they make profit. This, while simple, is not a sexy use case. No. Sexy use case is whether you analyze Twitter and and Facebook, and then um, throw 500 more ads at um, an individual. That is actually a fairly elementary analysis. It's, it's not that sexy. Twitter and weather and other things have far more impactful use cases. We just constantly make uh, very simple use cases and try to, uh, try to unnecessarily create a problem for ourselves. This is why this BS thing doesn't go away. There are many, many, many nicer use cases where you know people are already seeing value, just that that is not the one being marked. That's that's my take on it. That's why it never gets out of that hype cycle. I gotta say, this doesn't sound like a typical uh, waterfall project that I would associate with uh, with the IBMs or the SAPs or the Accentures of days past. Have you had to adopt a different methodology and approach? Yes. So uh, and. You might remember that I had a very anti-agile mindset um, five or six years ago. Yes, you're pretty, think, pretty famous for your anti-agile rants there. Yes. So in the SAP or package software implementation space, I still have big reservations on how far agile would work. But in the type of work that I'm doing today, agile is like the only thing that works. We have daily sprints for everything not just project delivery, even for sales, we work on, on daily sprints now. So I'm a huge agile fan for these kinds of projects where things change and we have to iterate. So big data uh, analytics is a, is a classic agile use case. The way things work, let's say it's predictive maintenance scenario or warranty analytics scenario. My statisticians will create a model. We pump in a lot of data. We go show it to the business. And that is when the business will probably tell you, guess what, we should have probably checked the service orders that our people who go on trucks to fix these machines create and see if we can relate that and have better results. Nobody thought about that at the beginning of the project. If I now you know, write a change request and um, you know, go back into a waterfall way, I will never finish this project and the customer will, will never see any, any, any outcome that's good for him. So we are constantly on an agile mechanism here where we iterate, we work with the business, and it's, it's a lot more fun, right? I mean, the consultants don't um, find it boring. 
and this large ERP projects, right? At some point after the second year, you know, it does get very on you. Whereas here, you're constantly on your toes and you're constantly finding out new things. It's a, it's a lot more fun. It's a little bit of a humble pie for you. I think it's good for all of us to eat a little bit of that. I'm looking yeah, forward. You bet. I'm looking forward to your I Love Agile Now uh, blog post. It's going to be yes, really I, a treat. I should I should write one. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so. Uh, and what about project duration? Are you seeing like just in general, I mean, you've described a different approach, but are, are these also shorter projects where you're sort of trying to build momentum with a customer over time by getting a bunch in place? Or Yeah, so uh, the way this typically happens is um, we sign a larger duration contract, but every uh, project is typically a small project, right? So four weeks or six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is, right? So there are a few that are longer term. Like if you want to build a, a data lake on, on Hadoop and, you know, have maybe MongoDBs around it and data stacks, you know, Cassandra around it and so on. That's a longer term initiative. But that longer term initiative is then split into several smaller initiatives so that they don't need to wait for two years to see value. So while the engagement is longer, strictly for relationship sake and for continuity sake, you don't want, you know, 100 different consultants working on your problem. So for that continuity take, um, we do sign longer term deals, but individual projects that fall within that that construct are all typically very small that give outcomes very, very fast. Uh, I'm kind of curious. I mean, you and I have talked forever. I think we first got to know each other talking about consulting skills. You would kind of do a post every year about the consulting skills needed. Are you also seeing, seeing kind of a corresponding shift? Are, are old school enterprise consultants able to quickly step into these new roles or is there some unlearning they have to do or some technology training or? There is definitely uh, unlearning to do, uh, including for me. A vast amount of um, time that you know I spend as a, as a hands-on consultant, not that I'm any less hands-on now, I, I still use a MacBook Pro for that reason instead of a, a nicer, sexier little machine because I, I code on this all the time. But um, yes, consulting uh, has evolved. More and more of these big data analytics projects are shorter duration and agile in nature, which is a complete antithesis of how life used to be for us in the past. We are not doing a lot of data warehouse build up from scratch type of projects, right? There's a big planning phase, big design phase, and so on. Here we are iterating it you know, uh, at very high speeds. So that um, that has a big impact on, on on how consultants approach the business. Plus, it's more important that people develop better communication skills, better ability to collaborate, because no one person knows the answers anymore. Right? It's you can't, you know, it's not like a transactional design where you can talk to one department and find a solution. Here, integration is the name of the game. Right? You are typically running after fifty different sources of information spotting correlations, then figuring out with your math experts on whether causation can be attributed to those correlations. And I mean, sometimes it can get extremely frustrating. Like I combined like six different sources of information for a customer recently on a flight to New York. And to begin with bad, poor Wi-Fi. So everything took a long time. And by the time I landed, I ended up with like 50 correlations and none of it made any sense to me as an 
I can't really imagine that people getting PhDs mean that they watch TV more. As in, what is the reason for that? And so there, there are these kinds of things where you need to work with a lot of people, right? A lot of domain experts, a lot of technologists, a lot of academicians before you come up with a, a model that, that really works. And these models don't stay idle either, right? The world is fast changing. So if you want your model to keep doing good things, then you need to tweak it as you go. So it's it's a completely different world for me and um, my colleagues. Yeah, I, th I think that people are making the mistake of thinking that it's just a matter of learning a new methodology and a new uh, set of technologies, but it seems to me that it's a lot of ha old habits have to die hard as well, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it, it is tough to uh, tough to walk away from that, right? Be things that we have done for 20 years, it's very, very uh, difficult to walk away from that, right? So that um, <laughs> you know that I have a rather uncharitable view also on change management. Uh, so change management, uh, you know, this might be one of those uh, situations where change management might be a, a good thing to to do to go with uh, these big data projects. BJ, you're never going to sell change management. It's digital transformation. Remember, man, it's digital transformation. Digital, That's how you digital. make the big bucks. Yeah, exactly. We need to completely rename everything. Well, that's that's what Ray Wong tells me, so I'm going to yeah. go with it. <laughs> I'm not going to fight Ray at all. Yeah. Yeah, you might not might not win the battle of the buzzwords with, with Ray there, especially, no, now, that, no, especially no. now that he has a, a book to peddle on this topic. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, he does have a book. I bought <laughs> the book. I haven't read it yet. All right, maybe we'll revisit that after we get uh, past, past the uh, introduction. So tell yeah. me about tell me about the the Internet of Things. Yesterday, I published a post where I made a point of whapping people over the head with all the fear and uncertainty and security problems that the Internet of Things presents. Everything from uh, out of control cars to wearables that could be hacked and used for industrial terrorism. <laughs> I didn't even get into the non-security issues. Uh, like, are, are we at a point now where we're starting to realize that this, this is actually problematic or, I don't know, I, I'm having a hard time imagining how that, how you overcome some of that. No, you, you cannot overcome anything. If you put something into a computer that you know, somebody can, can access either physically or over a network, you know, there is always a chance that somebody will hack into it. And I, I keep telling, uh, you know, my younger cousins and nephews and nieces that, you know, if you don't really want me to see, uh, it, it's better that you don't put it in a place and, and think it is safe, right? I mean, there is always somebody who will hack it. And even if you put all the smart technology in place, human beings still share passwords. I mean, there isn't a day that passes without me seeing somebody, you know, put a yellow sticky on, on a machine with user ID and password. So, um, yeah, no, security is, is definitely a, a, a big problem, right? And you addressed it beautifully, beautifully in, in, in your article. In fact, to the extent that we just bought a new car over the weekend, and um, I was very hesitant yesterday evening to turn on the the, the Wi-Fi activation on that. Uh, you know, thinking about this uh, this Jeep, uh, you know, with wipers flooding and you know yeah, all that thing. So these hackers drove this guy right off the road, man. Exactly. So. Uh, 
So I did not turn on the Wi-Fi. Let me just uh, summarize the story that way. But just despite all that, you you think that uh, adoption of this is is for real. I mean, you referred earlier to sensor data, so it sounds like some of your customers are definitely going that route. Yes. So the non-security aspect. So security, right? We cannot minimize security. Security is very very important. Right? In analytics, in IoT, in cloud, security can never be minimized. It's um, it needs to be thought through upfront, and that is only one part, right? Then you need periodic check-ins to make sure that you are proactively managing it as well. A lot of people do one or the other. Either there are people who spend a lot of time upfront in and thinking that okay, it's all designed well, and then they will stop worrying about it. And there are other people who spend a lot of time tweaking their existing systems but never architected it well enough in the first place. If you don't have these two things going together, security is a nightmare. So planning for security and then you know having an ongoing process to stay on top, absolutely. And it, it only gets worse every year if you, if you don't do that. But there is a non-security aspect of that, right? The value creation out of this data, uh, that is also uh, Predictable, and the reason I say it is, sensors, you know, throw data that a human being cannot read and figure out what it is trying to tell you. It is not particularly important that you read every little signal. It's essentially a trend that you spot amongst a lot of sensor data that tells you whether something is going well, something is not going well. You know, there is an opportunity to do something so. But to understand that you need a, a pretty solid grounding in, in statistics. And this is not just for sensor data. This is true for all kinds of analytics, where if I come and tell you that my model says there is a 60% chance that uh, you know an outcome A will happen, this is not uh, a reason enough for you to go all in on option A. There's still a 40% chance that option B can happen, which means you need a plan B. And a lot of people who use predictive analytics just make that leap of mind so all this cloud iot big data and so on there is this underlying one problem that people still don't appreciate data for what it is trying to tell you and you know like on tv you will hear daily right with election season approaching that oh 51 percent uh, lead it doesn't really mean much and people don't really understand that that doesn't mean it's all in yeah, we're back to predicting the elections and the weather, which are uh, topics that we have debated also in the past. Uh, yeah. I think it's I think this is a, a good stopping point for the first part of this discussion. So, uh, thanks for joining me to talk about analytics, and big data. Good luck with your IBM forays, Vijay. Thank you.